Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. My name is Nick Perrin, and I'm an actor, writer, and game master. And on Tabletop, I talk with an expert game master every week to find out the best ways to run amazing games and tell epic stories. Looking to start DMing? Or maybe you've been a game master for a long time and want to spice up your table? Then this podcast is for you. Tabletop is released on Mondays wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. So this is another one of those episodes that has been really long in the making, but we just really wanted to go ahead and make sure that when we finally talked about Journeys to the Radiant Citadel, that we did it right. So we are going to be recording that episode today, and I'm super excited to be talking about it with my two favorite co-hosts on the face of the planet, Mr. Glenn Myers, Mr. Lewinika Miller. Gentlemen, how are things down in the miraculous state of Connecticut? Oh, that was so sweet, Josh. Aren't we your only co-hosts, though? Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It's been a great day. Doing good down here. Excited to talk about the journey to the ra- through the Radiant Citadel and all of its wonders. And there's some pretty impressive stuff in here. There really is. Yeah. yeah. There's there is a lot to go ahead and get to in this book. So I am also very excited to go ahead and talk about it with you guys. I'm very happy that that we got this. I had it digitally. I had pre-ordered it months ago through D&D Beyond, but I... Um, as soon as I had the opportunity, I was down at our local shop, the Citadel, and I picked up my special local shop cover to add to the collection. It's going to look nice on my bookshelf once I get it built, because <laughs> having just finished a move earlier this month, I'm still putting everything together, so I'm not entirely yeah. all situated just yet. Yeah. Hopefully the move-in is going smoothly and that your bookshelf will be up, and so that these beautiful uh, D&D books are, uh, are displayed properly, because we are hitting that time of the year when they're going to be coming fast and furious from now through Christmas. Plenty of plenty of stuff to be uh, to be working on. So. I guess all the good stuff's getting ready to come out. I know, right? Yeah. Definitely some excitement out there on the shelf soon, so... Not that the other stuff we got this year was bad stuff, by any means. Uh, in general, I have been happier with the stuff that we got this year than the stuff that we got at the end of last year. I think that's a general statement. We can go ahead and say that pretty robustly without any kind of, without too much discussion or, or equivocation debate on that. Front. Yeah. On, on, d- debate on that point. I think that these books have routinely been better this year than last year. So, yeah. Fair enough. I'm very excited for, to get into this. I'm super excited for the books that are coming as well. And along those lines, let's jump in. Yeah, let's jump in. So this is definitely going to be an episode full of spoilers. We're going to handle Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel a little bit differently than we handled any of the any of the other kind of campaign books from last year. There are going to be spoilers in this episode, so let this be your warning up front. We're going to start today talking about the introductory chapters of it and talk about the way that the Radiant Citadel is laid out and some things that we see in there. And then each of the three of us picked one of the stories in there, and we're going to do like a deep dive discussion on those three stories that's going to be the way that we that we break out tonight's episode so 
Let's uh, let's get started here. So with the very opening chapters establishing what the Radiant Citadel is and how uh, the Radiant Citadel functions and what its function is in the ethereal plane. Let's start. So gentlemen, surface ideas about the concept of the Radiant Citadel and its uh, and its place in the in the deep ethereal plane. Now, what were your thoughts? So I think it's a really cool concept and it's working off the sigil concept. Yeah. Not exactly. A number of other it does like restaurant at the end of the universe where <laughs> way out there in the ethereal plane you've got this giant floating diamond that effectively is the power source and life source for an entire city compound structure so you're getting spacey too now because it's been carved out of an ancient fossil so like a giant cosmic being everything in the city from the streets to the buildings every structure was carved throughout this ancient fossil yeah. i won't go in too deep but a little bit disappointed that we didn't get a little bit more lore and background on the Citadel exactly. itself and yeah. the original founding civilizations and the lost civilizations and stuff, because there's a treasure trove there. But I get why they did it. A lot of this book, and I think its greatest strengths, is it's designed to give you enough information for you to develop these lands, these cultures, these people, the story more yourself they want you to write what happened at the beginning of your radiant citadel and they want you to come up with the extra lost civilizations and that's really cool because you're challenging the dms out there and the storytellers to not just use what's in the book but take the information that they gave us through the gazetteer and the other lore in the book to expand on it and create even more and bring it even more vibrantly to life in our world yep. all in all base concept i think it's hot Totally agree with you. What about you, Mr. Miller? I actually, from a story standpoint, I like the idea of the central hub where all these adventures take place in and around that touch upon, but are not necessarily focused on. I like that. That, to Glenn's point, gives a lot of narrative leeway, no pun intended, for storytellers such as myself to kind of roll into that and do something with it while still having these beginning adventures. So you could run a small campaign, getting them to the right level, pick the adventure you want here. And that leads you to be adjacent to the Radiant Citadel and then go from there and knock your hearts out as far as what you want to do. I like that setup. And I think that works really well. More importantly, from a content creative standpoint and a content creation standpoint, I just love the way this was constructed. I love the how and the why of this book almost as much as I love the content of this book. Yep. Having alternate cultures displayed in this fashion in a fantasy realm that is not Eurocentric is very, very intriguing and excellent to me. Yep. Just the way they describe people. Absolutely. Like I'm going to get into a lot more detail when I talk about the specific chapter that I'm detailing tonight. But when they talk about the way people look, hairstyles, skin tones, neurisms, body shapes, all of those things are handled with such a plum is probably the best way to say it. <laughs> that I'm just amazed at how well it's written and put together. It is a book that displays people in a respectful way that is fun for players to play and fun for storytellers to storytell. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree with both of you. I love so much of this book and the taste that I got of this book really left me wanting so much more. I wanted to know more, like you said, Glenn, about the lost civilizations. I want to know about how the civilizations found it, how each one found it. I Really what I wanted is I wanted like a whole book about the Radiant Citadel, not just the book of campaigns. And the campaigns that are in here and the adventures that are in here are all stellar. They're fantastic. They're very well written. They're very well edited. They're very well put together. I love the content. It's been fantastic. But yeah, this whole opening chapter, these this 15 pages of stuff about the Radiant Citadel, again, much like the Candlekeep book, left me wanting so much about what else is in there. The difference is with Candlekeep, so much of what is in Candlekeep has been established. There are novels about what's in Candlekeep and everything like that. And the Radiant Citadel, there's just not. Yeah, I mean, so many things. Like you commented about the reference to Sigil. I loved in the art and culture section, which was just one paragraph about the entirety of the art and culture of the Radiant Citadel, but talking about how all like the fusion of food and everything like that. I was like, oh, yes. please tell me, where's the cookbook here? Because I want this cookbook. All that yeah, sort of stuff. the food fusions you know, thing I, was a great ad. 
Yeah, I thought that it had, there were pieces of it when it started talking about the incarnates. I thought that there were pieces that talked about, there, there were echoes of the Fae and the Feywild, kind of the whimsy of the Fae, which I thought were really great. I thought that the incarnates themselves, they struck me a lot like the keepers from Mass Effect 2. The, those are the weird creatures that kind of tend to the care of the station, which I thought was, that's the first thing I thought of that. And I wonder if that was maybe Sadie's video game influence coming in a little bit on there. I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, I think the juiciest fruit on this vine in this opening chapter was about these there's like a almost like a throwaway reference to these 12 lost civilizations it's like wait a minute what the hell are you talking about what 12 lost civilizations where'd they go so i think that there are some really interesting ways that you can hook into the plots in here i like that you brought up the incarnate the incarnates because those strange gem conglomerations in terms of being like a representative of a people is a super cool concept because each gem that makes up the cluster is a piece of a soul of the ancestors of those people. So these are yeah. literally, I don't know exactly how they fit in terms of guardians, guides, etc., for the Citadel and the people that they mm-hmm. represent, but they're literally made up of the memories of their ancestors, which is super yeah. cool. Yeah. It's even called the Citadel, which was the name of the space station in Mass Effect. Maybe that's where the connection came from for me. One of, one of the things that I thought about when we were when they first started mentioning these 12 civilizations was I immediately went to Battlestar Galactica and the Lords of Cobalt. And when you take the incarnates and I didn't think about this initially, but it must have been in my head as far as why I made that connection. But Glenn, if you think about um, certainly the newer Battlestar Galactica from the early aughts, each of them had a symbol and ends up being a constellation for Earth, but the Torrens and the Capricans and so on and so forth. But each of those uh, symbols represented those people on that planet and right. their and therefore their culture, which was very well documented in Caprica, the follow-up series, even though the series only lasted one season, they did a lot with the cultural differences between Capricans and Torrens. And that was also dealt with in a couple of the side movies from Battlestar. And I think that was very along those lines where you have a people represented by a symbol. Right. And the people represent that the symbol represent the people and they can almost be used interchangeably. That's that you don't get much more Battlestar Galactica than that. <laughs> and uh, honestly, yeah. I went a little bit both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 because the Radiant Citadel is a melting pot space station kind of thing. And there's so many things going on with culture in this book. Yeah, it just yep. it's it has those vibes. And of, that's what kept yeah. drawing me in. It, it wasn't we stopped my reading to do this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's something I'll be going back to because yep. there's more to mine and more to plumb here. Yep, definitely. Yeah, there's, I agree. I have not read all the way through every adventure. I have skimmed them all. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to deep diving in a way that I'm not, that I'm not normally very excited to do. Think about like Candlekeep again, like we intentionally did not want to go ahead and read them all because we wanted to play them so badly. These adventures are all fantastic and I I don't want to necessarily play these adventures. I definitely want to run them though. I think that they're, I think, and we'll get more into that when we start talking about the way that these adventures are built here. All right, gentlemen, without any further ado, D20s to the Ready. Ooh, what are we headed towards with this D20 roll? Well, we're going to roll initiative order to go ahead and see who talks about their story in what order. Oh, I am not going first. I've got a five. Eight. Allow me to roll again because I picked up my thing and lost it. Sixteen. Sixteen. Mr. Miller, then you have the initiative. So tell us. Which story did you read and, di- and deep dive into? I read the fifth level adventure, Wages of Vice. Excellent. All right. I was drawn to the title, and it's probably <laughs> not because of the wages. I'll leave it at that. But <laughs> but, but it is. Yeah, as, as, as soon as I saw it, when you put out which one you were reading, I'm like, of yeah. course he did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Of course one, he did. And honestly, the chapter does have Lee Wanika written all over it, like in big, thick Sharpie. So that's, yeah. If you... it, it really does, but it's good. <laughs> when, when I did my read through so that I could help talk about it, I was it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I just went by titles. I thought, the, and maybe peek behind the curtains for the audience. 
our decision was we were each going to read one adventure thoroughly, deep dive into it as individuals. The rest of us would skim those episodes so we could talk about it and have a good conversation. So when I went through to pick mine, I decided I was not going to read the intro to each of them. I wanted to go by title, which one grabbed my attention. And there were two that really stepped out, but this is the one that I kept going back to. It was the first one that caught my attention. I looked at a couple others. I'm like, those could be good. That could be neat. And, but I kept like side eye and looking back like that meme where the guy keeps looking at the new thing passing by him. That was this, <laughs> that was this, this adventure for me. So here we are wages of advice. And right off the bat, it started with something that I just found wonderful. It talks about a little bit of the background and then it jumps into the pronunciations. And these are things that appear throughout the book. But um, I was, I had this book for a very short period of time when I saw this and I just loved it because these are names and styles of names that are indicative of various cultures and various cultural identities. And the writers of this book and the editors of this book took the time to make sure people knew how to pronounce them. So at a table, people can do well with these things. Like it can just say a name correctly as a person with a bit of an odd name. You're as far as Eurocentrism is concerned, this really spoke to me. If my name was going to be in a D&D book and it had a pronunciation guide, I would be proud of that. And and that really jumped out at me as being an incredibly cool thing. And so I encourage storytellers out there and players. Storytellers, give your players the pronunciation key so that they have it at the ready. Storytellers, use these. Enjoy these. If you need to have it as a cheat sheet, write them down, print them out, something, have them right on hand. Take the time to get these names right. There are people that will really appreciate the effort you put in to getting these things right. And that was like the first thing that jumped out at me as being particularly cool. Absolutely. Very cool. And I love that they had that at the beginning of every chapter. And every adventure has its own set of pronunciations and every adventure has its own unique culture that it introduces and it does it super well. Yep. Then this is where I get back to just the way I love the construction of this book from a content creator standpoint. They get into setting the adventure. It's a real brief bit. I wouldn't, it's not even a chapter within a chapter. It's like a few lines, but it's basically they talk about where it's set within the Radiant Citadel, gives you a link if you're looking at it online, but it tells you where to find it in the book. So you can pick it out with Zenda's Gazetteer, the area you're from. It tells you where to set it in the Forgotten Realms, takes it back to my roots, Greyhawk, where you could set it in Greyhawk. And then it goes into character hooks, just ways to bring people into this adventure. It's not terribly lengthy. It's not terribly involved. It's real quick, but it works and it's solid. There's a lot to be mined here for anybody in that content creation space who's out there writing adventures for DMs Guild and Kickstarter and Itch.io and all the other services out there. There's a process here to have in mind that is going to be very welcome. And then you get right into the adventure itself. It jumps right in. It it describes what's going on. The box texts are short and clear, which are great for games. They're not terribly involved. Anybody who's been at a table as with adventures with super long box texts will know that DMs will stumble over them from time to time. Not every DM. Great storytellers may not be great public readers per se, but they can be great presenters. So if you keep your box text short and sweet and to the point, informative and clear, it works out really well. And that's exactly what the what this does. But it's, it basically sets the adventure. There's a big celebration at the March of Vice. It's a, it's a festival where people come together and it describes the city as well as the people who lead the city, the, the kings of coin, as they're known. And it gets right into it. Now, this adventure has a mystery at the heart of it for the players. We're going to be somewhat spoilery here, but I'm going to try to not give away all of it here. But there are characters you're going to come across that are going to divulge the mystery. But there's more importantly is that the mystery is pretty good. It's the one thing that I came across in the book that really jumped in and gave us what to uh, gave us that air of not everything's perfect. And I like that setup. 
Yeah. Before you dive too much into the mystery, I did have a question. This is one of the notes that I wrote down as I was writing it here. And there is something about the term, the kings of coin, that sounds very familiar. Like, we have met kings of coin before. And I don't know if it's that this adventure reminded me of things that happen on Chult that immediately drew me that the kings of coin were a Chultian thing. But... I swear that sounds familiar, and I have yet to be able to go ahead and place where that actually came from. And so I would just ask either of you two know, then certainly go ahead and chime in. But I would say, if you don't know, then please, listeners out there, where have I heard the Kings of Coin before in a D&D context? I do not remember, but I swear it's in there somewhere. So I, that's all I want to say on that. The Merchant Princes of Crossing and Dragonlance is the closest thing I'm coming up with. Yeah, maybe... Yeah, maybe it was I the think, Merchant Princes. Boy, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think in liter in literature, there's all kinds of Merchant Princes, Robber Barons. I think there's similar terms, literature, and in history. There's often Masters of Coin, too, yeah. as a, sub, as a yeah. subservient role in a realm. Yeah. I, yeah, I think there's just a lot of similarity with that, and I... But for me, certainly the artwork here made me think of New Orleans. I spent a lot of vacations down there with a visiting good friend of mine, and it really had a Mardi Gras feel to it. It's really the feeling I came away. And I was thinking about the king cakes and all of those things, the costumes, the masks, and all the different parades. And I really got that feel from it. I'm, I don't know if I'm 100% that's what they were going for, but I also know that Mardi Gras comes from older traditions. And I think this is more going to those older traditions, but it has that flair, that feel. Certainly the pictures really come to that. So that that's where yeah, I, so- that's kind of where I took it. I think the March of Vice and the Wages of Vice name is specifically referring to what's responsible for the city's prosperity, which is the Geely plant that they make the yeah, Geely wine out of. Yeah. yeah. The Geely flower, yes. That they and that that deal from within the backstory and that specific element, the vice is drinking. Because they make wine. That's how their nation became rich. Um, wages of vice is kind of like you're getting your comeuppance now. And then your march of vices. They're celebrating the fact that, hey, look at us now. We are some rich, wealthy mofos. And we can dance and parade <laughs> in the street for 10 days. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I, it's a valid opinion, and I do think that's where the title yep. comes from. Yep. To use the phrase karma, is it comes to mind, but that's what this <laughs> is. The chickens have come home to roost. That's what this is all yep. about. This is about yeah, yeah. you put bad things in, eventually bad things are going to come bad out. things come out. And that's yeah. the core of this mystery. The people yeah. in charge did some things, made some decisions. And that was as what you wanted to reveal, decisions. so I was talking around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as a result of those decisions, we have an adventure. So. Yep. Essentially, the plot can carries on. There's attacks on various individuals. There's a mystery around these individuals. They tend to be related to very powerful people. And the players just find themselves in the middle of this. And then eventually they're asked to help because they're put in positions in this adventure to, to bear witness, step in and do some things to, to help. And if they do yeah. help, they get better information than if they don't help. And so it carries on. This is an adventure that does really ask the players to be in for the adventure. So when you set up a session zero, you do need that social contract to be mentioned. I think it goes without saying that games need the social contract. We say it all the time here, but this does ask for that. If your player characters just want to go shopping or just want to go do whatever, they might miss out on some of these things and the adventure may not hit home as much. But I think it's pretty compelling. But I would always say, Mention the social contract. If you sit down to play a game, players play the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that is a recurring theme in all three of the adventures that we're talking about tonight. I know certainly in mine, and I have comments on that when we get there. And Glenn, I thought yours too also did that. So I wonder how many of the other adventures in the book do the same thing where it implies that you're doing the adventure and that you're in for the ride, right? The safety rails are very close to the edge of the car. So I, I think that's it is steering you in a direction without being without being uh, a detriment to the storytelling. But. Well, absolutely. And storytelling, they did well throughout too. I won't give away details, but the players have an opportunity to see, bump into, and recognize 
recognize the guilty party early on. And there are little bits that weave that in bit by bit as they collect information to figure out who they are. And it's woven in very well. Yeah. And to that point, there are a number of times where they write for the DM. If your players ask this question, now you let them know. So at various times during this, if the players picked up on that brief clue that happened at the early part of the adventure, guess what? There's, yep. they, they've got it in there. And at the various yep. times where it could happen, they might remember this. They might know this. If they do, go ahead and tell them. Yep. So there's plenty of opportunities to jump ahead as far as your knowledge base goes while you're still going through the adventure. You're still going to go through the adventure, but your knowledge base goes up. You can have a different kind of thing. And I just like yep. the way that goes, which I think is a great segue to the characters themselves. I think the characters as they're described in this adventure are wonderful. They're colorful both in again tone body shape style attitude and they're well formed like people have a perspective each of these npcs has a perspective and it's not about people being true villains it's about people who have made bad decisions or decisions you might not agree with and there's nuances to that and i love that this has the marks of political intrigue adventure consequences those are the types of things i frequently play in my games and that's why this really spoke to me and it was all in the it really everything really goes back to the title and that's what i really love about this adventure nice action beats throughout the final action sequence is really cool there's a couple different ways to navigate many of these combat sequences you there are a few things you can talk your way out of there's a few things you can't so there's different ways to do that and you see the city and you see the people throughout i think that's a combination of events of the three pillars that you don't get in a lot of adventures. And I really like the way they put that together in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And in reading through it, honestly, it brought it to life a little bit for me. And I've got a visual mind as I'm reading and the way that the scenes played out across this small city, I guess it's not really that small, but the small, the sections of the city you're seeing, it really like it, it comes to life and feels like a full setting just in the way that they wrote the four scenes or major scenes that take place throughout it. Ah, welcome travelers. I see you have found your way. Welcome to the heroic subclasses of the Multiverse Kickstarter. Which are your favorites? Are you telling stories of political intrigue? Perhaps the Metropolitans are for you. Are your tales dark, mystical, and mysterious as the Shadow Dwellers themselves? Or are you out for high adventure? and want to take your ship to explore the lands of the boiling seas? Do you hear the call of the wild and want to dive into the Outlanders? Help us bring you these amazing subclasses, plus backgrounds, feats, adventures, and more. Fair time, friends, for Legends Await. On that front, thank you, Mr. Miller. Mr. Yeah. Myers. Which one? Oh, it's my turn already? It is your oh, turn yeah. already, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. You sure we don't yeah. want to talk more about wages of vice? <laughs> we your 15 minutes of fame begins now. Oh, I'm so scared. All right. So I chose written in blood. And I did go through and read all of the synopses twice trying to decide. Just a short paragraph, one in the table, not the full one at the beginning of each adventure before I decided. And it sounded intriguing just based on the way that it was written. And I was so thrilled once I dug into it because (laughs) since Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft came out, I have had a huge thing for a little bit of the horror style to D&D and the Domains of Dread. And it's right up my alley because the micro community presented and written in blood you could insert anywhere that you wanted to or and they say it right in there it could specifically be a domain of dread and i won't tell you all the details about the dread lord that would be behind it because that gives away a deeper piece of the adventure yeah and i'm not going to promise to be spoiler free or even spoiler friendly i'm just going to talk about it but not give away the deep details if i can no totally but it's all about these people who were brought by pantheon of five gods from a dying world here to survive but this land is now failing too so they had been living on this strip of red clay that's fertile through this wasteland 
that they call the ribbon. And it's safe, but its soil is failing. And then you got the rattle, which is like on the the outskirts, the edges, the fringe. When Simba looks at all the light, all that the light touches, and he says, "But what about that shadowy over there area over there? The rattle? That's where the hyenas live." And you could get hippity hopped all the way into the birdie boiler just to complete that reference. So because the fertile soil is failing, which you think is going to be the plot of the adventure. How do we restore it? What's causing this? Why is this community failing? The gods brought them here. Nope. That's a mystery that you can use for a future plot line. And this book is full of that, where it presents in each adventure, multiple plot lines and often an over possible villain or bad power that's not addressed in the adventure. So if this were a domain of dread, the Dreadlord isn't what you'd be confronting. It's a vassal or minion of the Dreadlord. So that's still there, right? For the taking later, for me, the storyteller to develop. And that's another thing that I really loved about it. But yeah, so since they can't figure out what's wrong with their soil, the brave souls, the young souls, the adventurous souls are beginning to farm in the rattle where it's much, much more dangerous. But like Wages of Ice, it introduces a whole community of people and their culture, complete with pronunciation guides, their own festivals that they have. And that takes place in the one town that they have. It's called the Town of Promise. And there's a little bit of ocean there, too, that you can develop later, too. And it gives you great ideas on how to plant it in different areas, just like Wages of Ice did for Ravenloft, because it could be a domain of dread, or Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk. But the adventure takes place during the Awakening Festival which is, and this was my probably bar none favorite part of the adventure. The Awakening Festival is a multi-day ceremony and during which the Awakening Song is sung, which is a full communal retelling of the land and people's verbal history through song. And they have their own versions of bards who go around and judge whether or not a recent event or someone's deeds are worthy of being brought into the awakening song and just that whole piece of their culture right there had me captivated that doesn't feature directly into the adventure beyond the festival but you've got and as the adventure starts and the story takes off in the middle of this awakening festival basically just some farm hands from one of those farms in the rattle show up and they've got these red swirlies in their eyes and mm. they suddenly turn violent and start attacking everybody yeah. and hopefully your players intercede step in and are part of it because then and Aunt Deli, who knows her nieces out there in the rattle, recognizes a drawing that one of them has clenched in their hand that her niece or granddaughter had drawn. But the whole reason they're there is to lure more back because there's a sinister undead presence behind it all. Yeah. And it has poor Kiana, Aunt Deli's missing relative, as its thrall based on a relationship. All right. The big bad is a conglomeration of crazy undead body parts. Yeah. All right. I'll let you read about it in the book. It's insane. Yeah. But it's parts totally of creepy. the souls from all of the bodies and the parts that are conglommed into it okay. make up its self. Essence. Yeah, and the most essence. recent addition happens to be Kiana's cousin from when they were kids who drowned in the lake where this the evil resides. Yeah, Kali. And that gives them a connection. And so he's using Kiana to lure more people from town now in order to feed his undead ravenous hungers. And it's creepy as heck. And I oh, loved it. So creepy. Yeah. That was the thing that struck me most about this particular chapter is that like my the notes at the very beginning of the chapter that I wrote was cinematic and creepy. This has got, again, the kind of alluding to vibrant lore by just like, you know, just referring to the five people placed there by the gods and the strip of land that they farm on and even just like the name like the ribbon the all these proclaimer tungsten all these like all these different super vibrant evocative references uh, and this, i didn't bring up this, the names and titles but yeah yeah this struck me as like the finest of stephen king stuff i know stephen king gets a lot of crap sometimes for some of his worst stuff every writer on the face planet does but at his best he was oh, no, best he at using quality horror using subtle language to evoke. And I think that was something that this adventure in particular did fantastically. Like just when we meet Aunt Dele, like we have a sense of who they are as a person from the very beginning and being able to go ahead and get that sense of, of who they are, very few words and very succinctly is a 
is a talent that I do not possess. I am one wordy bastard. And I like I loved that about this though. Just like the the economy of language that is used in this chapter is brilliant. So it is very concisely written, but still brings up all of the imagery. Absolutely. And just the description of the town when you get there and you're looking around and there's not a soul to be found, right? There's yeah. blood and there's but no bodies. Later you find bodies, but they're missing arms. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But there's yeah. red clay handprints everywhere, covering the ground, the floors, the walls, because this big shambling mound of arms and hands corpses just kind of rolls around, touching everything. Yeah. Oh, it was totally. so creepy. Yeah, I really like uh, uh, all of that, like all of it. But one of the things that I thought of when I, when I was reading this and as you were explaining it, it really nailed it for me was The Walking Dead. And specifically the mm. early seasons when the little girl was missing on Herschel's farm and everybody was out mm. looking for her and they kept going. And yet Herschel knew where she was or knew like she was gone. Who they were looking walked. for. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was one of these things, but he was trying to keep this secret contained and then it got away from them. Like, the, again, similar to wages of vice, the things you do come back. <laughs> they have a way of coming back a little bit of theme thematics here very common in horror but as you said this was this had those horror vibes this is that horror adventure extremely fun to to play this is the one that if i were to be a player this is one that i would enjoy playing in because i would get my oh heck no moment in this one no we're not doing that we're not we're just not doing that um th that's one of those things and in true horror fashion, when is the best horror work? How does that work for D and 5D specifically? Low tier. This is a third level adventure. Yeah. This is where yep. horror has its best, where you are very vulnerable. It doesn't take a lot to kill you. Little things will scare you at this level. If you're 15th yep. level, yep. how bad is it going to be? I got five, six rounds in me, no matter what's coming at me. Yep. It's not as scary, but at third level, Nope. You're peeking around corners before you just boldly step out there. Yeah, but totally. Then, I promise that I will stop making parallels between this and the Candlekeep book. But if you think about the Book of the Raven, which was the second or third adventure in Candlekeep, that was also like the deep, dark horror at chapter with like, you know, the Shelley Brant effects and are they in Shadowfell and all that aspect and everything like that. And what does what does that adventure and this adventure relate to each other? They use one of my favorite creatures. That's the Crawling Claws. So, you know, uh, right. gotta love animatronic hands that just dig themselves out of graves yeah. and attack you. That's gotta love that. And the Soul Shaker is like a giant <sighs> blob of Crawling Claws with arms. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you the know, Soul Shaker. The Soul Shaker scared the... Sh out of me it really did that was like that was a creepy ass creature there's no doubt about that whatsoever and if you don't kill it it comes back it comes back but i'm not telling <laughs> you how to kill it y'all gotta figure that out on your own yeah, um, yeah, but one yeah. of the other things i really loved about they wrote not just this adventure but other ones as i read them is they wove in interesting npcs in this one there's two that could wind up following you one that's a scout who has a vested interest in the area and the other one's a song collector for the, the awakening song yeah. and both of them have different ways that they can impact the adventure and different spots where they'll step away depending on what's going on which was really cool and well orchestrated yeah. but the fact that there are multiple ways to end this adventure and both of the other two adventures i also really enjoyed they wrote out an ending for multiple scenarios depending on how it goes. Because you've got a you've effectively got a girl that's being possessed by an and the thrall of an undead entity. It could go a lot of different ways. Some of them may mean she winds up dead. But they don't have to and they account for that and they have several ways that you can save her. Yep. And I really do like that they didn't just make most of the outcomes have to be fight and win. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. All right, so it is now my turn to go ahead and and take the mic and talk about the mission that, that I read through here and, and did my deep dive on, and I chose the the tenth level adventure between Tangled Roots. The first thing that kind of drew me to this adventure was how much I, I love dragons, and because how can you not love dragons? But really, there was so much that was interesting about this material. We talked about it in, in other ones, about how it took the culture and it really broke it apart into like easily 
understandable pieces for folks that are not in that culture or don't necessarily understand the culture, the way that it really very succinctly and very elegantly broke down the pieces of the culture that you're dealing with in in the story here to go ahead and break through. And, you know, I found that this story, more than other stories that we read in the book here, had this sadness is the wrong word to it but it had this like this like melancholy to it like it it opens with this dragon attacking the city that you're on your way to but the dragon isn't doing it because it wants to or because the dragon is evil or anything like that it's doing it because it's sick and it's poisoned and it's being eaten away by its own environment and i've just found like that kind of recurring theme to it and the theme of redemption that basically the quest takes on was just a really interesting and very poignant story that I was really drawn to and I thought was very interesting. I think that there were some aspects of it that I felt were a little... We we talked about this in some of the other episodes about how that the path that these stories cut through their material is pretty narrow and there's not a lot of way to go ahead and deviate from the story that is being told within these missions. One in particular that I thought about in here is that how as you're on your way to the opening city, you see the dragon attacking, right? And it even goes so far as to say verbatim, there is no way that the players can make it to the city in time to do anything about it. And I understand why they say that. I understand why they had to start the mission that way. It also seemed a little heavy-handed. And so while I get it, it's also like, you know what? I'm not sure how I would do it differently, but that was something that kind of stood out to me. It's like saying it that way. I'll agree. I didn't like the fact that they straight up, that they said it that way. They said there's no way possible because... Your players will surprise you. Somebody's going to have some magic item somewhere that you forgot. The characters are by are what level by the time they're playing this game? Tenth. Tenth. This one's by tenth, tenth yeah. level. There are a number of ways characters could move from point A to point B, even if it's a mile away, even if it's yeah. three miles away, even if it's fifty miles away in an instant. Yeah. So that was the one thing in it that I agree a hundred percent. It smacked as way too heavy handed. Uh, Not likely. Yeah. And it's okay to set a scene that way, because if you're five miles out from the city when a dragon attacks, unless you have something that will allow you to teleport instantly, all you're going to do is ride like hell, maybe cry a little and watch because it's going to be over before you get there. And that's just a fact. That's setting the scene, foreshadowing, you know. What it struck me as is not not the narrative device that they were hoping that it was, but a source of potential player frustration. Because that's the if I if I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a player in that situation where session one begins, it wouldn't be session one; it'd be like session thirty by this point. But whatever, like the session begins. Like, okay, everybody, you have your character sheets, you have your dice. The first thing that you see is the dragon attacking the city. What do you do? And no matter what they do, it doesn't work. And there's a the frustration is built in as an interesting angle, and again, like feeds to the melancholy of the story as a whole. But also, I think could be potentially frustrating for players. I saw that as being problematic, and I actually toiled over that for a while. And then I said, how would I run that as a storyteller without making some of the classic mistakes that I made in the past? You have to go through that door. I don't want to go through that door. I'm going to jump off this bridge while well, you appear back on that bridge and how badly those things, types of things go. So what are some of the ways that a, that a storyteller could run that a little better? Yeah. One, never say the words you can't actually get there. Avoid yep. that phrasing. That's for DM's eyes only. But what you can say is by the time you come into view of this, you see the dragon breathe its last breathe there and turn to to fly away in the opposite direction from you. You can't catch a dragon in flight or rarely could you. So even if you could cross a mile of difference through haste, minor teleports, major teleports, the dragon's leaving. This dragon doesn't give a crap about you. It did what it intended to do. It's gone. So that's the way as a storyteller, I run that scene. I wish it was kind of written a little bit more like that. The dragon's in the process of leaving. You see it breathe its last breaths as it flies off into the distance opposite of your approach. 
Correct. Don't set them up to helplessly in a fishbowl watch the carnage. Exactly. There's actually, there's another example in this chapter that I think was actually a more egregious version of like absolutist, you can't do this storytelling. And it is your interactions with Paolo. The very first time that you meet the dragon hunters, it says specifically in the text, nothing any character can say deters Paolo or his allies from their quest. Nothing. There is nothing that the players can do until two pages later when all of a sudden Paolo is now willing to go ahead and engage and is very interested in working with the players and everything like that. So it just seems like the whole reason why it is impossible to convince them is because they're going to come around and be convinced already two pages later. And it's just, and I don't want this to be, I don't want this to come off negative. I don't want this to sound like I didn't like it because I actually really loved this adventure. There are several things that I really loved about it. So I guess that's more of, it's more of a cautionary tale to storytellers. Figure out how to navigate these two pieces before you get there because otherwise it's going to be frustrating and come off sounding heavy-handed. Some of the things that I absolutely loved about this, to, 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 kind of, to again get back to the positive stuff here, is that I loved the layout of the encounters that you get in this adventure. Like The sky bridges were absolutely mm. amazing. They were so flavorful and so evocative. And like the one when you're on the bridge and you see the burned out tree, the thousand foot tall burned out tree and the way that's described and the way that you have to interact with it. The way that it like details the way the land is laid out is just absolutely stinking amazing. I also loved when when they were talking about the voices of flame, the questions that you're asked when you're on the bridge to go ahead and pass, but like a, a much more serious nod to like Monty Python and the Bridge of Death, that kind of thing. The questions that they ask you, tell us, how did you die? Like that's just, and your characters have to go ahead and spin this tale about how has their spirit died why is their spirit in their body why are they who they are what has their ancestry informed who they are or they have to come up with some tale and just entertain the people on their side i thought that was just a really remarkably cool and evocative scenario i just absolutely freaking loved it loved it thought it was so cool yeah just i loved this adventure the artwork here was brilliant and you mentioned the sky bridges and the way the land looks this artwork which i believe is painted but has the air of real photography (laughs) photography does she take the pictures i you know what i mean your inner channel over there yeah but it has that air of photography and yet with a painting or a matte painting over top of it. So it's almost like you have this real landscape with junks in the bay and a smaller boat with an outriggers underneath this giant tree, the shade of this giant tree. Yeah. <laughs> and the sky bridge. Yeah, which it, S's back and forth in a very serpentine fashion. Yeah. yeah. It's just brilliant. It's yeah. very vivid. Um, I absolutely could see adventuring here beyond the single the single adventure that's written here in the book. Yeah. This is something that I could see players coming to, journeying to, finding yeah. missions. Like you could see the monks we did in our recent class warfare. Oh, yeah. After they totally. finished with that, they could have to go here to return whatever they retrieved to oh, the yeah. tree itself. I mean, yeah. and then utilize some of the adventures that they list as what you yeah. can do after the adventure yeah, which is a nice much feature so. for each of these by the totally. way there's little after adventure plot hooks for each of these stories that are yeah. really brilliantly done oh yeah absolutely and they, that's they all that, include little bits okay. of flavor too like throwing in not just a sky bridge but then giving you the bone singer even though it's mm. almost a defunct position because the sky bridges effectively are not going to be able to ma- be maintained forever Right. Since the magic that created them is fading, but these bone singers yeah. maintain them as best they can. I love them. And it's just singers. those little so details great. that they throw in that yeah. have made so many of these adventures sing. Even just calling them bone singers, like that's just such a cool title for the uh, calling that they take. And uh, Luanika, to your point too, I, that is something that we see throughout this book is that the individual pieces of source material that are through all of these adventures, this book is infinitely liftable. We talked about the sky bridges. We talked about some of the creatures. We talked about other stuff. 
talked about like the theme in in Written in Blood, Glenn, when you were talking about like the theme of it. Luanika, in your mission, we were talking about like the the festival that they go through at the very beginning and a way to introduce the plot and introduce the characters and everything like that. So infinitely liftable material throughout this book. Whether you want to go ahead and play the entire adventures or not, liftable components allowing you to go ahead and take this and bring them to your homebrew campaigns. And on that front, the one thing that I do wish that this book did is, and again, this is a style decision that Wizards made. I'm not throwing any shade, merely just trying to go ahead and say that my preference would have been for the chapters to be presented the other way around, where each chapter had the gazetteer up front that explained to me as the storyteller all the things that I'm going to be reading about in the adventure and then give me the adventure because otherwise I'm reading the adventure and I'm kind of like, what is this? What is this? What is this? I don't understand what this is. What, you know? Oh, okay. And then I get the guys here at the back and say, Oh, here's all the lore that I was missing to understand what was going on. And the reason why I want it structured that way is because as a storyteller, if my players decide to investigate the hay bale that's over there behind the barn, and I don't know what's in the hay bale while I'm reading the adventure, I, I have to flip through the gazetteer to see what's in the hay bale. It slows down. It makes it a little more awkward where I would much prefer to be able to read all that information up front, have that kind of tucked away in my memory so that when the players go over to the hay bale, I have some material to go ahead and improvise with a little bit to go ahead and help to guide that encounter to go ahead and let give them plausible information that could have been what's happening in the hay bale over there. Because we all know that players, no matter how closely the rails are on a mission, players are going to deviate. They're always going to find plan Q and go totally off track. So having the guys here at the front of these adventures would have given me that information up front as opposed to having to learn it after the fact. It's a design decision that Wizards made. It is what it is. I just wish that it had been up front instead of at the back. I would agree with you on the whole, but I would say this. Since we know, having read three adventures, that this is the way it's designed as a storyteller, if I'm going to run one of these, I will simply know, go to the end read the gazetteer, then go back to the front, read it. It doesn't change the way I would need to prep. It's just not convenient. It's just not the way I look at it. So it's a style choice, as as you said. But I agree with you. I like to know the overview before I read the pieces in place. It helps me have the right mindset as I'm reading it. And then I get to read for the right things to emphasize, the right things to de-emphasize. And as I'm reading scene by scene, section by section, I know how this plays with the players at my table. So having that information up front or ahead of the scenes works for me too. So I agree and disagree. And here's why. When you go through the Gazetteer, to me, there's a lot more in here than you would need at the beginning of the adventure or that you get in most adventures. I think what they were trying to do based on the way that they designed this book, and it's one of the things that I honestly think is the coolest thing about the book, is each one of these 12 adventures isn't just presenting you with enough background and lore to run the adventure. They're trying to present you enough to give you the scaffolding to develop the area. It's a world building section at the end. They need some of that lore up at the top, though, instead of making you constantly refer to the end, which is why I agree. Yeah. As soon as it comes up above, it should be explained. Instead of making you go hunt down Bone Singer later, you should be able to read about the Bone Singer then, if they're not going to put it in the front. But I support the idea of a world-building section at the end, and I think that 100% fits into the mold of the kind of things we want to do. So what I try to learn from this is if we want to do something like this and create like a mini ecosystem of role-playing we want to do it slightly differently we want to put some of the lore in the front before the adventure but then after that give them the world building prompts to help them develop the area and i think that would make it fantastic yeah you you have successfully passed your persuasion check i am now fully in your camp yay mean you're fully in the camp where he neither agreed nor disagreed I'm fully in the camp where we do it his way. No, I both agreed right. and disagreed. I didn't do neither. I did both. Yeah, yeah. I'm not an undoer. I'm a doer. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think that honestly, I think that the reason why it happened this way, because this we really haven't seen anything like this where this had this established gazetteer at the end of each chapter. But remember, we're talking about a set of books with 14 different realms. There's not just one realm. If you look at if you look at, at Netherdeep, think about how big the chapter was at the beginning of the Netherdeep book about what the Netherdeep was and all the details that you're going to find and everything like that. That chapter was massive. It had a huge amount of information in it. But it was only talking about a, an adventure that happened in one world. This is 
14 different worlds. And so I understand why they had to have it. And I do think that even if it's not going to be at the beginning and then followed by the adventure, even if it was like interspersed like that, that works for me too. So yeah, plot information needs to be earlier. Realm information, general realm lore later. But plot, anything that impacts the plot or direction they could travel, that needs to be within the adventure itself or pre- preface to the adventure. Yeah. yeah. All that to go ahead and say, let's leave with some final thoughts here on the book as a whole here, because I think really an excellent book that so well set its path and told the stories that it wanted to tell in the way that it wanted to tell them. Really, probably one of my favorite books from Wizards in a long time. Just so well done. So well done. We have some quibbles about the way some of the information is presented and everything like that. But really, at the end of the day, do I think that I'm going to sit down and run this book cover to cover and run every adventure in a line? Probably not. But is there are there a hundred things in this book that I would love to go ahead and lift and use various elements of in different games and everything like that? Yes, probably more than that. There are tons of material in here that I would want to go ahead and pull for other things. And so I'm really, I'm really impressed by this book, and I'm really excited to go ahead and deep dive into some of the other stuff that's in here. What about you guys? I would agree. This book was fantastic start to finish. There is always going to be a few things we're going to quibble about. That's part of the fun of the conversation, sure. right? We yeah, like to exactly. quibble. Um, <laughs> and some of, our quibbles are yeah. some of our quibbles are 100% legitimate. And some of our quibbles are just us being, I don't know, people who like to hear themselves talk a little bit. And, <laughs> but that's okay, because that's yeah. part of what we do. But by and large, constructed, so liftable. You said it 100% yeah. right. I, there's a couple of adventures in here. I may run the adventure. But I would never run all of them. But yep. there's so many things that are liftable right down to just, I don't know, I don't know if I'd go so far as master's class, but definitely taking everybody to school and giving some solid lessons on how to build a micro culture and oh, yeah. environmental system in D. Just lift the format they used and you can yeah. work on creating them yourself and help you flesh out your own. Totally. Totally and- agree. Absolutely. They give you the infrastructure, the scaffolding, to use Glenn's frequent term, to build your own culture, region, area, section, and to build your own campaign book if you were going to do some, if you were so inclined, because you can do that. If you're building NPCs, they built a ton of fantastic NPCs here, very simply explained and easy for storytellers to to run at the table and fun for storytellers to run at the table. I would go so far as to say it's a master class in how to construct this stuff. That was actually the note I had written down on how to do some of this stuff. One last thing I would say before, because I don't want to repeat the accolades that the two of you have already given about the book. At the end of each adventure in the penultimate or ultimate climax encounter, there's a simple map. And the maps are very simple. They're not terribly detailed in most cases, but they're very yeah. simple. Easy for storytellers to reconstruct on paper if they're playing at their local game shop or at their kitchen table. Easy to be represented or recreated in digitally. And even if you wanted to homebrew and improve that with Incarnate or some other tool, you could dress this up, make it full with color and bring all the verve you would like. Yeah. And just as importantly, if you wanted to play with it in terrain, you could put this out and put out terrain there. And even better, it's so these maps are so well done that they would be very easy for somebody to simply describe and play by theater of the mind. And I think it is, I don't recall seeing a set of maps for a set of adventures that's so well covered all of those angles. They're usually good for one or two of those things, but not all of those things and at least the three definitely the three adventures we looked at i think good for all of those things and the other ones i skimmed also looking pretty good for all of them all i can say is kudos to the team at watsi all the folks a few of which we know of and have spoken with but kudos to that team and the work they've put together my last thing bringing alternate different new underrepresented cultures to this book Thank you. Very well done. Very well described. And it goes without saying, like I said earlier, the guy with the long name appreciates what you've done here. I don't think they set out to write this book 
for me individually, but it really felt as though they did. And that's really impressive to me. That is awesome. Said, I think that is the perfect way to go ahead and uh, and end today's episode, Dustin Miller. So thank you very much for that. Let's see here. So next week we are finishing up the most recent chapter of the Arch Enemies uh, Patreon actual play. A reminder that if you want to get in on that game, you can go check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com/ttjourneys. And then next Friday, our friends from the RPG Academy into the show to go ahead and talk about a Catacon and their latest Kickstarter to go ahead and get their convention up and running here. Always a good time to go ahead and have Michael and Tom pop into the show. Looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. Other than that, go out, pick up the Radiant Citadel book, especially if you're a home brewer. So much good material in here. You will not regret it. It's a fabulous book. Like I said, probably one of my favorite books, uh, pro- certainly over the last year. So yeah, definitely, definitely worth checking out. So any last words for you guys tonight? Read the book. Read the book. Buy the book. Read the book. Play the parts of the book that you love the most yeah absolutely all right thank you very much gentlemen as always i appreciate uh, glad that the thunderstorm stayed out of our way uh, this evening i appreciate that we'll talk to you guys later and thank you everybody out there for listening to the show hope you enjoyed it and like i said we'll be back next week with our friends from the rpg academy so have a great week everybody thanks so much thank you for joining us this has been tabletop journeys we would love to hear your feedback on our show today Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.